Hey everybody, welcome to another great episode of Catholic Laughter. I'm Carl Kozlowski. I'm Scott Vincy. Thanks for joining us, you guys. Carl, what's on the docket? What do we got going on right now? Well, I just want to remind people that, you know, we do clean stand-up comedy shows that uh, we perform all over the country with a Catholic twist. But here on the podcast, uh, we've got some amazing, we've got an amazing interview today and a couple of really interesting stories. So right off the bat, I want to talk about Nick Cannon. You know, yeah. he's the uh, TV host for The Masked Singer, and he used to be on America's Got Talent. And before that, he was a singer. And anyways, he revealed uh, the past couple of weeks on a radio show that he has 12 kids and he spends $200,000 a year on taking them to Disneyland. I mean, wow. wow. That's, that's, that, he's worth a lot. You can tell, like, if he has the time to take them to Disneyland and afford all that, you know, he can, he can afford many things. So good, good on Nick Cannon. Uh, way to be a, a, I would say that's a pretty good dad, wouldn't you? Like, I would love to go to Disneyland. <laughs> Yeah, man. You know, well, I mean, because you know, on the other on the one other hand, we got to think. You know, for a typical family of four, it's at least fifty thousand, though. So you know, it's uh, very understandable how that happens. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. You know, I but, was, I actually did some math, Carl. I, you know, if it cost him two hundred thousand to take twelve kids to Disneyland, you know, insurance for one kid is like anywhere between. 16,000 and 26,000. Let's say one kid is 26,000. That's 312,000 a year for all the kids for health insurance. So and Disneyland costs two thirds of that. That's amazing. Crazy. Yes. <laughs> Nick yeah. is a, he's an amazing earner. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, definitely in the top 1%. But, um, yeah. you know, I think that God said, you know, God said, hey, be fruitful and multiply. But I mean, you know, he'd even say this is ridiculous, but it's nice to see a devoted father. But Nick, put a ring on it. Come on. <laughs> that's that's funny. Or six rings on him. Uh, I think he has six, six women that have the children with him, which. Uh, wow. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty awesome, yeah. though. I mean, you so know, watch out any lady that gets involved with him. You're going to have two kids and then he's going to disappear. So, uh, you know, uh, but uh, anyways, I think it's a pattern. Well, I, I did ask my home um, AI computer companion box uh, how much Nick Cannon was worth, and and uh, she said he was worth fifty million. So I think Nick Nick's uh, Nick's doing all right for himself. He can afford he can afford big family fun. <laughs> well, yeah, that'd only be two hundred fifty years of Disney trips. So yeah, I think he's okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but um, you know, but I recall Eddie Murphy having a lot, right? Eddie Murphy has eleven kids. So really. I, maybe, Maybe they're in some kind of contest. Who knows? You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, I think they're trying to be the next Walton family, you know, from the old 70s show. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> except it's except it's going to be a lot different with Nick because he names his kids really unusual names. I'm going to list them all because they're so amazing. He has Halo Marie, Lanisha, oh, wait, no, Halo Marie, Onyx Ice Cube, that's Onyx, Onyx Ice Coal, that's a girl. <laughs> Then he has a daughter named Zeppelin and twin boys named Zion and Zillion. And Zillion's middle name is Air, H-E-I-R. So he's known as Zillion Air. And oh, wow. then uh, he has two daughters named Monroe and Moroccan with Mariah Carey, who he did marry. And then uh, he also has 
Golden and Rise, a daughter named Powerful, and a son named Legendary Love. So that's going to be hard if you have to do the Waltons, you know, like, you know, good night, John Boy, good night. With him, and be like, good night, Powerful, good night, Zeppelin. You know, that gets, uh, oh, hell, forget about the rest of y'all. We're done. Good night. Good night. <laughs> yeah. Well, but you know, uh, yeah, he's created. He's he's creating an empire, a canon empire. When these kids get older, they're going to rule the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the names have to be unique so you can remember them all. Because you know, he's like the opposite of that famous boxer George Foreman, who also had a ton of kids, and uh -huh. he named them all George or Georgina, and then put numbers behind their names to tell them apart. Like he literally named his sons George One, George Two, George Three. It's like really. So uh, at least it's creative. You know, if Bill Gates had a, a bunch of kids and named them all Bills, it'd be Bill 1.0, Bill 2.0, Bill 3.0. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I want to say, um, you know, on the positive side, well, that's positive that he's having a lot of kids, but not exactly in the, you know, marital Catholic kind of way. But, um, you know, what's interesting is that Nick's mom was a 17-year-old who got pregnant with him unexpectedly and she went into an abortion clinic to abort him. But then suddenly it felt wrong to her and she ran out of the clinic and had him. And so he's actually grown up his whole life, very passionately pro-life. And he wrote a big song about it back in 2005 called Can I Live? And the music industry turned on him because of his pro-life views. He says they wanted him to do all the usual gangster stuff or booty call songs and all that stuff. And he did that. And that's how he wound up in television instead of the music industry, he says, because they all decided to turn against him. But, mm. uh, you know, and, and the, the, the last thing I want to say is he also, um, uh, his dad said that Nick believes in have, that he taught Nick how to have as many kids as you can, as long as you pay for and care for them. So while not, while it's not exactly Catholic style, it's nice to see an outspoken pro-lifer in the entertainment industry. So, you know, kudos to Nick. Yeah, kudos to Nick's dad and, and Nick. And, and you know, he's he's doing and it. Zillion and and Zara. <laughs> yeah. All of them. Yeah. Yeah. He's making it happen. Yeah. Well, so. Uh, well, you I know what's it's... next, Carl? What? It's time for. Saints and today's saint, if you can see the video in our podcast, uh, you, yep, you guessed it. It's Saint Nicholas. Am I right? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Carl's got a costume on for those of you uh, listening on the podcast only headphones. All right. So today's saint is Saint Nicholas. He's the patron saint of of sailors, merchants, archers, repentant thieves, children, brewers. Oh, I know, pawnbrokers, unmarried people, and students in various cities and countries around Europe. I don't know where that last part came from, but... Yeah, well, you know, the kids in Luxembourg need somebody to pray to, so, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's... That in Liechtenstein, they're very alone in Liechtenstein, <laughs> so they, they really need the extra help from St. Nick to get to God. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... You know, I well, sailors, merchants, and archers, I mean... That sounds like pirates if you put them all together, doesn't it? Archers, merchants, and sailors. But uh, I, arg, arg, yeah, he, I'm just doing I, Santa pirate, folks. Just bear with me. They can all be gems. 
he, so Saint Nicholas was also known for his secret gift giving. He used to leave coins and shoes. Isn't that what you told me too? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, in my family, when we celebrated Saint Nick, uh, it was uh, like I'm in a Polish family, Kozlowski, and mm -hmm. or Santa Kozlowski, and uh, and my uh, uh, in Poland, for some reason, or they keep Christmas Eve and Christmas purely about Jesus. And they don't even have Santa, which made my childhood weird. But mm. we would celebrate on St. Nicholas Day. Um, we would get a bunch of chocolate. and But we did get presents, with, but it was all about Jesus, though. So, you know, he did, he did the coins in the people's shoes. And uh, so, you know, I'm surprised that, I don't know, what did you think about the coins in the shoes, Scott? Uh, you know, I do that on the regular. I put coins in my own shoes just so I can pay for the parking meter half the time. Uh, I'm <laughs> yeah, like, oh. well, Go well, ahead. It's like, it depends how many coins you put in people's shoes because put a little too many, it makes it hard to walk. I mean, you know, that's kind of annoying. Yeah, and it sounds kind of loud too. I usually yeah. just walk with uh, $10 bills in my shoes. It makes me feel rich. <laughs> yeah, I bet, I bet waitresses appreciate the tips that are all sweaty from that. But yeah. um, by, by the way, I wonder who thought of St. Nicholas's fashion choice. Was like this his choice? Like, hey, you know, I'll wear some red stuff that looks like pajamas, but uh, it's really comfortable. And uh, it'll it's go really hot and itchy is what it is. Okay. <laughs> I mean, this beard. Well, I guess he grew it. So, yeah. Well, it looks good on you. Maybe you should think when you get to your 70s and 80s, maybe you should really grow that beard that long. <laughs> yeah, long. you know, and yeah, hopefully that's a long way off. But um, yeah, anyways, but the idea of Santa Claus, Santa Claus spun off from St. Nick because it was evolved from Dutch traditions regarding St. Nicholas, and they called him Sinterklaas and the, the, the Santa figure in Dutch culture. So when the Dutch established the colony of New Amsterdam here, they brought the legend and traditions of Sinterklaas with them. You know, to me, Sinterklaas, that sounds sinister. You know, <laughs> I'm getting you confused with Krampus. Nobody wants that. To me, it sounds like a, uh, it sounds like a grammatical error, you know, like on the page. It's like, oh, I forgot to put my Sinterklaas in parenthesis. <laughs> or I, I need to quotations around my center claws <laughs> doctor i think i pulled my center claws i need help but um it <laughs> also reminds me of the whole dutch thing and pointing it out that it's center claws officially that reminds me of dwight Schrute on the office always pointing out weird things about dutch sayings uh, so uh, yeah that's but funny. uh he well, also um his in the eastern orthodox church another branch of us catholics the St. Nicholas's memory is celebrated on almost every Thursday of the year. So, I mean, man, does that mean we're supposed to get gifts every Thursday? Because I've been ripped off. Yeah, or if you have to give them every Thursday, that can get quite expensive. Yeah, it's like Nikana money there, man. I'll tell you what. <laughs> well, also, uh, they said he he's known, St. Nicholas is known as the great gift giver. and. Really? Uh, there's also, I don't know if you know this, Carl, but St. Neiman Marcus is also known as the great re-gift giver. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a really beloved saint for the for the ladies who love to shop. Patron saint <laughs> of shopping, no doubt. But, yeah. um, you know, the thing is that uh, his, his um, holiday or holy day is on, or feast day is on uh, December 6th. 
So they say for those who still observe the Julian calendar, the celebration currently takes place 13 days later than it happens in the Gregorian calendar and the revised Julian calendar. I mean, come on, church, pick a calendar already. You've had 2,000 years to decide. I know. That's funny. But, uh, yeah, so um, I guess, uh, you know, t time to talk about our, our guests. So, yeah. um well, that's, you know, Carl, that is the end of Saints Corner. All right, Carl, let's talk about our this week's guest. Why don't you uh, tell our loving audience who's coming on the show soon? Yeah, well, I'm very excited. This time we don't just have one comic. We've got two, a two dynamic duo. Yeah, and it's quite an interesting pair. Um, you know, the, the, bear with me as I explain the first one, because uh, you'll understand in a second the whole uh, connection. But uh, our first guest, uh, one of them is named Azar Usman, and he was named by CNN as America's Funniest Muslim. He, uh, like, they actually picked him even over Dave Chappelle, who he tours with. And so um, he's also been a staff writer, co-executive producer of two critically acclaimed original comedy series, Rami on Hulu and Mo on Netflix. And he also appears on screen as the Joff the Euro King, a recurring role in the historic uh, Ms. Marvel on Disney Plus. And so uh, very excited to have him on board. But you might be wondering, why are we having a Muslim act on a Catholic laughter show? Yeah, well, why because, are we, Carl? Yeah, well, it's because uh, his best friend and uh, tour partner for a lot of his shows is an Iraqi Catholic, otherwise known as a Chaldean Catholic comic, named Paul Aliyah. And uh, we're excited to have him as well, because um, he was see been seen on dozens of television shows, including Rami, Lady Dynamite, and perhaps best known for appearing a lot of times on TBS's Conan, appearing in over a dozen sketches. So, ladies and gentlemen, we bring you Azar and Paul. Well, hey, guys, uh, thanks for uh, doing the show with us. And uh, first off, um, you guys are kind of a unique team in the comedy world because Azar is a Muslim born here. And Paul, were you born in America, Paul, or um, elsewhere? I was born in America, raised in Detroit. Okay. Yeah, so you're an Iraqi-American Catholic, otherwise known as a Chaldean. So how did you guys meet? And do you feel your backgrounds... Uh, from differing faiths and ways of seeing things to some extent. Um, does that help improve your working together? Yeah, well, uh, the first question, how we met, we met through stand-up comedy. We have a lot of mutual friends. Me being, uh, you know, a Syrian, Iraqi, Chaldean, in the game of comedy, I just started to gravitate towards other uh, people that are similar backgrounds. And uh, I met Rama Youssef. When uh, pretty early yeah. on when I was doing comedy and then through the circle of, you know, Rami's an Egyptian Muslim and I grew up in Detroit. Detroit has the highest population of Arabs in the entire country. So naturally there was always intermixing of like Muslim faith and Chaldean faith. And it's sort of been like that for uh, a while for me. Like I would pray with my Muslim friends. Uh, I, I didn't do like the traditional Muslim prayer until uh, I would say the last couple of years, which I which I do practice as well. So, uh, yeah, I would say me and AZ met through comedy, just through the vine of just the uh, Middle Eastern comedy community. Okay. Um, do you want to add anything to that, Azar? About, like, do you yeah, feel, no. 
how this affects your working together having different sure. things like that? Yeah, no, I mean, I would just add to that, you know, that that was really wonderful to meet Paul, like you said, through mutual friends. And, you know, uh, I'm not Arab. I'm Indian. Uh, it's an ethnically oh, Indian background. Sorry. But no, that's all right. But I grew up Muslim. So kind of like um, the way that they're the, the, the Catholics are a minority in Iraq, um, you know, the Muslims are a minority in India. So okay. I, I had a, I had an immediate kinship with Paul and. You know, since that time, since we first met, I've basically been attempting to convert Paul to Islam uh, unsuccessfully for many years. So that's that's how we got to this point. No, AZ was great. Like, I basically put Islam in my cart, and then it's like, continue to check out. I put in the address, I put in the discount code, and then it's like, I'm like, eh, I'll just save it for later. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm just like, yo, what's the three-digit code in the back? <laughs> Uh, what is the three digit code? What? Yeah, that's I'm not putting the security to, code. That's all we need to consummate this transaction. <laughs> no <laughs> returns. No. Returns. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, I have no a return. question. For you. I have a question for you, Paul. Paul, so you 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 identify as a Chaldean Catholic. What what's that? What is a Chaldean Catholic, and how is that different from the Roman Catholic like Mass and? What what are the differences that you know of or that you can assess? Well, they're, they're very subtle differences. Uh, you know, Chaldeans are Catholic Assyrians from Iraq. Uh, the Assyrian community basically broke off into a few s different sects. And Chaldean was a religious sect uh, that was divided when the Assyrian church divided. Those The Assyrians are Christian Orthodox and Chaldeans are uh, Catholic Church of the Eastern Rite. So the praxis are very similar, very similar to like the Roman Catholic Church. A lot of the same, uh, basically the, uh, the Catholic script of like the opening and then the blessing of the bread and then the prayers and then the Holy Communion and then the final prayer. Like the same beat sheet is the same with uh, the Chaldean Church. So I, I grew up going to Catholic grade school uh, so when I would go to Catholic grade school and basically just attend the Roman Catholic mass, it was very similar. Really, the only difference is that we would pray in Sudith, which is the language of the uh, Assyrians. So we we all our prayers were in Sudith, but uh, very similar to like, you know, the Catholic church. I mean, it is Catholic. Well, y'all well, yeah. got your own pope, though, right? Uh, we don't have our own pope, but we got our own uh, bishop. Oh. Oh, and and I think we have a cardinal actually. We actually have a cardinal as well. Wow! Oh, but I didn't saw that. Cardinals don't have like. I thought y'all had a brown pope. No, the uh, pope, uh, the pope right now, Pope Francis. Mm -hmm. He is our highest authority. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, interesting. Yeah, he but he doesn't answer my messages. <laughs> that guy. It's a little busy. A little busy. Running yeah, I, I, I DM'd him. I'm like, hey, would you mind sharing my comedy special? And nothing. He's like, can no, I he's like, help you with Paul? <laughs> he's like, I'm already executive producing Jim Gaffigan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, how did each of you guys fall in love with comedy? Were your families funny? Or did your passion for performing develop later as an adult? Hello? I'm gonna let Paul oh. go first. Oh. I was gonna, I was gonna let you go first. <laughs> oh, sure. I mean, I guess Somebody. since I'm older, 
I am older <laughs> than Paul, which is weird. I feel I, I have this big brother kind of uncle vibe with a lot of a lot of younger comics now because I'm pushing fifty. I've been doing stand up for over twenty years. Um, yeah. but but yeah, you know, I got into performing, you know, really in high school, even even younger than that, actually. Um, you know, I grew up in this uh, in Chicago. I was born in Chicago. My folks came to Chicago from India. Uh, a couple years before I was born. And then I was raised sort of in this north side of Chicago, Muslim community. Um, I grew up in a, in a suburb of Chicago called Skokie, Illinois. Yeah. And, you know, a bunch of Muslims from like the north side of the city and Skokie and Lincolnwood and four or five other kind of surrounding suburbs. There was a mosque community that I was kind of connected to. And then we started going to these summer camps, kind of the way Jewish kids would go to Jewish summer camp. You know, there was this Muslim youth camp. And so they'd have, uh, you know, uh, um, campfire every night. And then every cabin would perform different, whatever, whatever their performances was. So I would do comedy and I was doing these comedy sketches, probably starting when I was like 10, 11 years old. And so I kind of got bit by that performance bug early. Then in high school, I did some theater and I kind of got more into it. But I never imagined doing stand up. Um, until I had a friend when I was in law school. This would have been the mid '90s, mm-hmm. and he was a amateur comic who would go perform at the open mic every week. And so once I finally got it out of him, like, where do you go every Monday night? And once he opened up to me that he would go to this open mic, I was of course like obsessed with like I have to I have to check this out. So I went and watched him do stand up, and I'll never forget that first night I ever saw open mic stand up comedy which would have been in the fall of 1996. And that was in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis, St. Paul. The comedy club was called Acme Comedy Club. It's still there. And on that night, I got to see, you know, they say that people are inspired by greatness and mediocrity. Mm. And I got to see, like, the full range of the spectrum, like just absolute trash, horrible, wannabe open micers <laughs> who just sucked it, who sucked at stand-up so bad. That I, I walked out of there feeling like I can do better than that. But I also saw the opposite end of the spectrum because uh, that night, uh, Mitch Hedberg, uh, you know, rest in peace, who is one of my favorite comedians, he's from the Twin Cities. He happened to pop in that night just to work on some new material. So I got to see him and I got to see Absolute Trash. And I would just remember walking out of there that night, like, I have to try stand up. And it was not until a couple of years later that I finally worked up the courage. But that's basically, that's basically how I got into stand up comedy. What did your parents? say when you you were like hey i i want to do this this is fun i'm good at this yeah you know by the time they got wind that i was even doing stand-up at all you know i was already married and i had a kid on the way so you know they're they just you know they, they sort of shrugged their shoulders and you know i had been a little bit of a wild child already like i went to law school but during law school i started a dot-com internet company and i you know, turned out a law firm to start my own, to do my own startup. So they were already like, yeah, this guy's a little bit crazy. And so by the time, you know, I kind of made up my mind, I was going to go for it with standup, you know, my parents were, and that was, I didn't, I didn't really quit everything else and go full time into standup until 2005, by which point I had two kids and had, you know, I was married, I was a few years into my first marriage. So by that point, my parents really had nothing to say about it. It was more like, "Good luck." That's that. That yeah. was their attitude. Good luck. Yeah, I see. 
How about you, Paul? Like, what, what, what inspired you, and how did your family react? Uh, I started as an actor. I mean, my which I still do. Like, my first professional gig, I was a stand-in for Michael Imperioli. If you are familiar with him, yeah, he plays Christopher from The Sopranos. Yeah, yeah. So I was his stand-in on a show in Detroit, and then while I was in on this show, this is like my first professional acting gig. One of the actors on the show, Sean Majumder, is a Canadian comedian. And, you know, he's since then gone global. He performs all over the world. He's, you know, a recognizable name in the game. He was doing this comedy benefit and he was just like, yo, I'm doing this comedy benefit. You should come. And I'm like, bro, I want to perform. I would love to perform at this show. And it was at the MGM Grand Casino in Detroit. I never did stand up in my life. And I was like, I want to perform. So he goes, cool. I'll give you seven minutes. So uh i i never performed stand-up the only stand-up i did was i performed it in front of my brother and i was like pitching him jokes i was gonna do and he goes oh that's hilarious oh that's so <laughs> funny oh bro you definitely gotta do that and then he would be like and then after you say that you should be like i said shut up <laughs> like these were like the tags he was giving me so mm-hmm. i was prepared to go on stage and do a lot of these jokes including uh the tag my brother gave me which is Bitch, shut up mm-hmm. and then I show up to the venue and there's 2,500 people there. And it was very overwhelming for me. I go on stage, my whole family, plus all our friends are sitting in the front. It's like 35 deep, all Chaldeans. <laughs> They've never seen stand-up comedy really. Like the they're only comedy there. I mean, honestly, they, uh, they were pretty intoxicated. So I think they <laughs> forgot. They are Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> So yeah, so I do the show. Uh, obviously, uh, I didn't do well. I did, I did very, very poorly. And then uh, afterwards, I was like off stage beating myself up. And then my brother was like, "Why didn't you say Bitch, shut up?" <laughs> and then he was, he was saying that's why the the set didn't go well. So uh, I mean, since then, I mean, I was obviously humiliated. I didn't feel like I, I, uh, I was scared of stand up. And then when I moved to LA, I would say probably six months into moving to LA. This is this is 2011. This is in December. Uh, I went, got back on the horse and I just been doing it constantly, incessantly ever since. I mean, there was a period of time from 2011 to like 2018 where I was doing stand up almost every single day and multiple times, multiple open mics. I would go to like three or four open mics a night and I would just try different jokes. And, you know, I, I experimented with different styles and, you know, now I'm on your podcast. Yeah. Well, I I was just wondering um, about something that popped in my head, like, um, oh, God, it popped out of my head, too. We'll we'll cut it out. Go ahead, Scott. Sorry. Uh, So, like, I feel like that's a great fast track, like, to do stand-up every night. Like, I I would love to do stand-up every night, Um, even if it's, you know, sometimes it can become a tedious job. But, like, did you feel like you had, like... I have to have a day job right now to keep things going at the time. Did you have a day job too? Or did you just be like, I've got everything covered. I can do stand up. I mean, I was working multiple jobs. Like I was, uh, I was working as a caterer. I was doing valet. I was working at a restaurant. I was working at a nightclub. I was a unlicensed massage therapist. (laughs) I had several different gigs and trades that I was doing just like generate revenue. And then, you know, eventually I would like do some gigs and it's like, Hey, $200 $200 a show. And I'm like, well, I'm getting 200 a show. I do that show. Also, I was living extremely frugally 
is frugally a word? Yes. 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 So I was living, I was living this lifestyle. Uh, like when I first moved to LA, I was living in a one bedroom apartment that I shared with a white rapper named scripture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. Who, who was an atheist. What? Really? Yeah. Wow. And I, and I asked him why scripture, since you don't believe in that. Mm -hmm. And then he, his response was, but I spell it with a K. <laughs> what? Yeah, I mean, exactly. S-K-R-I-P, is that what you're saying? T-U-R-E. -T yep. You, uh, you can look him up right now. He has three music videos that I produced and I wasn't credited on. Mm. And oh, nice. yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he does business like an atheist. And, well, otherwise, it was good training for Hollywood, you know. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly, bro. Hollywood behaves, yeah, the, the, the deals are very atheist uh, adjacent. Yeah. Oh, actually, here's my question that I had a second ago was um, that uh, you have all these shows going on now, like that you guys have been involved with, like Rami and on Hulu and uh, Mo on Netflix, starring other um, Arabic uh, comics or or Muslim or I, I sometimes I get the thing mixed up. I apologize, but um, guys, the general background background of you guys. And but years ago there wasn't that kind of amount of opportunities going on. So uh, what do you think has changed to open up the doors? And uh, did you guys feel like it was difficult not having like strong examples of success uh, to to uh, emulate? Azar. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean. The first thing I, I do want to just, um, I think it's important maybe to underscore this because because your podcast is, you know, called Catholic Laughter. And it's, you know, I assume there's a lot of Catholics that would be interested in it. You know, I think it's kind of a significant detail just to underscore, like, Islam is a religion. Yes. And, you know, there's, a, there's almost, you know, they say about a billion and a half Muslims in the world. Um, every color of the rainbow, of the human rainbow. Uh, the most populous Muslim country in the world is actually Indonesia in, oh, really? in, Southeast, okay. in Southeast Asia. And, um, you know, the, the Arabs uh, comprise roughly 20% of the Muslims of the world. Okay. Um, the Arabs are, you know, a race of people. And uh, Semites, you know, it's funny because people will use the term anti-Semite nowadays to, meet some, to mean somebody who doesn't like Jewish people, which is not true. Semite is somebody who speaks a Semitic language, and Arabic is a Semitic tongue. So Arabs are actually Semites. Um, you know, Hebrew, Hebrew, Syriac, Aramaic. These are all Semitic tongues. But the Arabs are, you know, basically a, a people from the Middle Eastern lands. And you may not, you may be surprised to learn that the majority of Arabs in America are actually Christians. Huh, okay. So this is one of those things where this two, these two categories often get conflated. And uh, I think it's probably important, especially for a podcast like this, you know, for, for listeners to be, to be, to become educated about that. Now, yeah. having said that, um, you know, in general, there hasn't really been a whole lot of Middle Eastern, Arab, Muslim representation in the history of Hollywood. Um, yeah. The extent to which you find it, it's, pretty tropey it's pretty one-dimensional you know yeah. it's arabs as terrorists it's arab you know <laughs> brown guys as taxi drivers or you know 7-eleven owners so you haven't really had a whole lot of 
um, Hollywood representations that have been nuanced. And so, yeah, I think we're kind of in a new era now where we're starting to see more of that emerge. It's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah and I was just, just to add on that, I've auditioned for so many hacky, like, <laughs> like refugee or terrorist roles. And like, I remember one of them, it was like, uh, I, it was one line. Uh, basically this guy was like talking to me. He goes, he goes, so how you doing, sir? And then I was like, when they came into my village. <laughs> and then they just stops there. And it's like, it just goes into some other story. It's like part of like a dream sequence. And I was just playing some guy who had something happen to his village. Do you guys feel like they, they, they go, oh, we need an accent. You guys need to put on an accent. Uh, to, yeah. Oh, 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 all the time. Like uh, I've. I've auditioned for, well, it's hilarious. Like, cause I've auditioned for roles and it's like looking for an Arab male twenties. And I'm in there with, uh, and there's Indian people there. Mm -hmm. And then the, and then there's like the Indian people are just like, yeah, dude, I've been playing Arab for a few years now. <laughs> and they like, and they're like, dude, I just perfected my Arab accent. And thing is like, they would have a natural like Indian traditional Indian accent. Uh -huh. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it right now, but like they would have the traditional Indian accent, go into audition, be Arab and then leave Indian. Mm, I see. I had, I had a friend, um, he speaks fluent Spanish, right? So he goes on his auditions and he learned a long time ago. And this is, this is a pro tip for my friend, Dave. So he used to go in like this. He just sound normal. Cause he, we were roommates in Texas, uh, in college. And uh, he would go into the audition and be like, hey, how's it going? Do you guys need an accent? And they're like, mm, yeah, um, why don't you give us a, you know, a, a Spanish accent from Mexico? Give us a Mexican accent. He'd be like, OK. So then he would do the accent in the thing and then he would leave. He would say, thanks a lot. Didn't book those roles. Then when he started going in, it said he needs a Mexican the character is Mexican. He'd walk right in, and the second they said, "Hey, how's it going?" He would put on this Mexican accent. He he never let it go until he walked out of there, and then he started booking more because they wanted like an authentic Mexican. Hilarious, yeah. Hilarious. You know what? I, 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 I'm telling you another just quick quick acting story. Like I was a reader for auditions, and I was I was a reader for this uh, Iraqi film director who was making a film about Iraq. And then what, and then the thing is like the Arab actors, some of them are like so bad mm -hmm. <laughs> because there's not a lot of roles for them. There's not a lot of roles. So the thing is, and it's usually like those like terrorist, like hacky right. things. Yeah. So this guy had to go into this audition. He was playing a guy uh, basically giving his children to someone else. And then, so the guy, he was just like playing it so big. He was like, oh, oh. And he's like, please keep the children safe. <laughs> and he's like screaming. And she goes, cut. And she goes, hey, let's do it again. But like, let's tone it down a little bit. And then he goes, but my child is going to die. <laughs> and then she goes, yeah, yes, your child is going to die. But I just want to have it just a little bit more throwaway. Like, you know, like, hey, keep them safe. Or he's, it's your stepkid. It's not your real blood. <laughs> You don't care as much, you know? No, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding, everyone. No, that's hilarious. The, what a hilarious note. <laughs> um, Get the doctor. Hey, I got a question. Uh, back on the, the kind of the track I was uh, heading on a little bit more was, 
Um, <laughs> since you guys have traveled doing the, the world doing comedy, uh, and and Paul and uh, Zara, you guys um, tour a lot together, right? I believe that's what Zara told me. Um, so, well, we've yeah, we've done. I don't, I don't know, I don't want to exaggerate it, but yeah, Paul and I have definitely done a bunch of shows together. Do and <laughs> now, over, over the years, we've done a bunch of shows together. Yes, I was just wondering, since we're in such tons times in the world, what do you feel about the power of comedy to bring people together and just laugh with each other? Oh, it's the best. I mean, it's what what a you what a incredible tool we have to where you can say anything you want as long as it's funny. If you you can make any point you want to make, and then the judicial system is like, was it funny? Was there a point? Pass. You know, the 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 harm is when people are like not even saying jokes and they're just being like, you know, just having like very like just rough disgusting takes michael rapaport so i would yeah. say uh yeah okay how about you azar yeah i mean i try to be careful not to exaggerate the role of comedy <laughs> you know it's important sure and um to to paul's point i mean i will say this you know, there's kind of an unstated rule in stand-up, which is, you know, what Paul said. You know, yes, you can say anything you want, provided it's funny. And I would add to that that you know, the more offensive uh, a joke is, and, and and you know, let's be honest, we're comedians. Like, uh, a comedian knows when he or she is attempting a joke. Uh, excuse me, he, she, or they are attempting a joke that you know is going to be offensive. We know that. So it's like, okay, well, the litmus test has got to be, you know, it's got to be way funnier than it is offensive. Um, if it's not much funnier than it is offensive, then, you know, then you're just an asshole. You're not, mm. you're not really a good comic. Yeah. And if you're way funnier than you are offensive, well, then that's the art of stand-up. And if someone is still going to take offense and, you know, pick it over a joke, that's their prerogative. But, you know, they're, they're now they're not quibbling with a comedian. So I think that comedy has a role to play in society, but at the same time, yeah, I think that in the end of the day, you know, um, there's only so much that can be done through comedy and through the arts in general. I mean, we see what's happening right now, for example, in the Middle East. I mean, there's basically a genocide happening. And, you know, what can artists do about that? Not, not a whole lot. Yeah. Gotcha. Azar, quick question. So uh, you tour with um, Dave Chappelle here and there. Uh, do you have any fun stories or insights about knowing Dave that well that you could share with us uh, legally? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's happened over the years. You know, I guess I would just su summarize, you know, my entire relationship with Dave. And I think a lot of people who know, who know him would, would say the same thing, which is that, you know, despite being being this kind of mega celebrity, mm -hmm. and by the way, Paul is you know touring with and is very close to Matt Reif, who has become okay. you know really the biggest touring comedian in the world this past year. Yeah. So the same thing can be said, I think, for both these guys, which is that you know people I think would be surprised to learn how down to earth these guys are. You know, the nice thing about comedians is, unlike I think actors or musicians even 
you know, there's there's a much less of a tendency for a comedian to get famous and then just have it go to their ego and go to their head. Um, Chappelle is extremely down to earth, extremely grounded. Um, you know, just really a real person. He's you know he's been married for a long time. He's got three children that he's raised with his wife. You know, he's just a very real person. Um, unlike the perception a lot of people might have that celebrities are a certain way or they're all about you know living a certain lifestyle or what have you you know dave is just a very down-to-earth real person and that's why i'm just you know infinitely grateful for that for that relationship in my life well i noticed that um cnn uh like uh that they could called you america's funniest muslim but then you're dealing with dave too so did that cause any um was there any competition or or like what was that about from him <laughs> no i mean the, the, dave knows better than anyone that those kinds of things are just media hype and you can never take that stuff seriously um yeah if anything he's he, you know he, he's uh he's been very much a mentor i would say to me as well and just you know helping me understand how to navigate um show business in general and uh, stand-up comedy in particular. So in that sense, you know, just the idea of, you know, you can't take any of the hype seriously, whether the praise or the criticism. And, uh, you know, you just got to kind of keep your head down, keep writing jokes, run your own race, and and realize that, you know, there's only so much you can ever do. In the end of the day, there's always going to be factors that are much bigger than, than any of us that will kind of control and dictate the the course of your life and your career. And so a lot of life is just kind of figuring out how to ride the wave. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. So um, do, do you guys uh, feel a sense of faith mission in your work as a comedian or, or not? Does it enter? Like, uh, do you joke about each, about each of your belief sets a lot? And do you feel any deeper, calling like it's a vocation of some sort you know what i mean yeah well you know my my whole purpose in life and this is something that you know az and i talk about like, if you boil it down like m my purpose in life is <clears throat> everything i do is for god so before i make any movements if i make any big decisions i ask myself is this for god mm. how is this for god basically i run it through the houses for god filter so when i'm doing material often I'll ask myself, how is this serving God? I mean, I do talk about religion in my special that's coming out in a few weeks. And in my special, I have a whole section about God and religion and uh, what it's like being a uh, practicing non-Muslim. Okay. Okay. And how about you, uh, Zar? Does it uh, drive you at all? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, faith has ultimately played a huge role, you know, in my life, in my career, in my stand-up, in my uh, television writing. You know, it's just kind of ended up permeating through through all of my work and all of my life. So there's no doubt that, um, you know, remaining a faithful human being, uh, trying, you know, very desperately in my own personal life, to try to, you know, inculcate the types of values and, and mores that I that I espouse, certainly that I claim to believe in, you know, that's a, that's a, just a big part of I think my life, and then it certainly found its way into my into my work as well. So, um, you know, for for many years I, I toured under under a brand called Allah Made Me Funny, 
Yeah. Um, yeah. With two other comedians, a black Muslim comic, Preacher Moss, who was the creator of that tour. He invited me to work with him. I became the co-creator. And then we actually toured first with a guy called Azim Muhammad, who is uh, another black Muslim, but he's part of the Nation of Islam. And then subsequently, we, we uh, ended up parting ways with Azim. We brought Hammer, who's a Palestinian American uh, comedian who's of course well known for the show Mo on Netflix and has a couple of specials out. But you know that project Allah made me funny. You know we got to tour that over the course of a decade all over the planet, and subsequently we came to find out that in many of those countries we went to places like Australia or New Zealand or you know all over the uh, the the Europe and the Arab world. You know, other people, young people, got inspired by our show, and you know, fast forward now, they've they've become very successful comedians in their own right, um, in various countries all over the planet. So it really became this very um, kind of a, a cultural moment in time, and uh, it was framed as a post nine eleven, you know, kind of response or whatever. And you know, I, I like to ignore some of that commentary because again, that's that's often commentators and pundits trying to put a label on, you know, the, the artistic work. I would just say that, you know, I was doing stand up by the way, before nine 11. So this idea that, Oh, somehow, you know, the tour was a response to nine 11. It's like, no, I, I look at it more like the only, the only difference was suddenly people care. Mm. Suddenly, suddenly there was an interest to hear what we had to say, even though we, you know, we were doing stand up. A uh, preacher must have been doing stand up since, since the nineties. So anyhow, a long story short, I mean, we're, we're, I'm very proud of that project, and I'm I'm quite amazed actually that uh, everywhere I go these days. I mean, I w- I just did a show recently um, in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. That's my That's where I'm at. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You messaged me yeah. uh, while, while I was Girl, there. Don't so, tell people yeah. that. Okay. <laughs> but but I was just there for a night, and I was shocked that like you know people who attended the event I was at, you know, a couple of them told me that they had heard my stand up like you know, 15 years earlier or something when they were kids, you know, now they're grown adults. So yeah, it's been, it's been kind of amazing to see um, just the generational kind of impact of of some of that work. It's been been pretty cool. And so I will wrap this up. You guys will, we'll get going here, but I want to leave you with this last question. We'll start with Paul and you guys can think about it for a second. What do you think is your funniest moment from performing stand-up comedy, whether it was like recently or a while ago, (laughs) I can give you an example of one of mine, just if you're looking for one, but like um, years ago, me and a buddy, uh, we used to go to open mics so much. We knew each other's act and he was probably, he was like a little overweight. And uh, so I would do his uh, one night. We said, Hey, why don't I do all your jokes and you do all my jokes. And that was like one of the funniest moments in my life. Like I still remember that night I was dying at him up there doing my jokes and he was dying at me when I was up there doing his jokes. We just did it at an open mic. And it was, I never forgot it. Um, you guys have any moments like that? Like either like recently someone in the audience or something you guys said went another way or, you know, if you can. Man, man, you know, you know, it's hilarious. You're saying that because I was thinking about this the other day. Like as a, like my first ever comedy show that I did, like the one that I did in Detroit, it was, uh, I didn't get a lot of laughs at all. There was a moment where the thing is I was hitting my punchlines with so much like, and here's the thing. <laughs> and I would like hold for laughs <laughs> and there was none. So, so I, so it's a 2,500 seat theater 
And then I said, I can't remember what joke I said. I said something like, and then that happened. And then I was quiet. And then I heard someone all the way in the back that he was just like, man, what? <laughs> it's like very faintly. Then I was quiet. And then he was like, man, this dude sucked. <laughs> and then, and then, uh, then I said my next joke. And then during that same low moment of nothing, this guy was like, you have my ballet ticket. Oh my God. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> the thing is like, it, it probably was a hundred yards. No, no, not hundred. Like maybe 50 yards from myself where the back of the audience was. Right. And I can hear him uh, losing his valet ticket. That's funny. <laughs> wow. How about That's you, Um, A funny moment. Yeah, top so... that. Top that, AZ. Yeah, <laughs> I got um... three laughs. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean... It's the same story. Looking, yeah, you're looking for a funny thing that happened that was not on stage, basically. Is or, or, no, actually on stage, like in their comedy career. Gosh. Or tell I us mean, the story off if you have a better one for that. Well, I'm, I'll, I'll tell you this story, which I would say is, um, it's probably not exactly answering your question, Scott, but it's a very memorable kind of moment from my, from my career. Um, huh. I was probably about seven or eight years into my stand-up career at the time and uh, Russell Peters invited me to tour with him yeah. and I was on the fence about it because um, my at the time wife now ex-wife was due to deliver our fourth son around that time uh -huh. so anyway I bit the bullet and I decided I was going to go on this tour um, I of course missed the birth of the baby which was bad um, and in any case, um, he then gets really sick. So now I get the sick baby who was delivered early, who's in the hospital, and I'm on tour, supposed to be doing jokes with Russell Peters. And I tell you what, man, nothing like a tragedy back at home to just make you destroy on stage. So I was just ripping it so hard in Dubai. 4,000 people, 5,000 people, wow. people are dying laughing. And I'm just having like the best sets of my life immediately coming off stage and just like, you know, going to my hotel room and just basically crying and worried about this baby and trying to figure out how I can get home on the next flight. And so anyhow, long story short, I'm in the middle of this crazy life situation where my personal life could not have been more turbulent. And yet on stage, I'm just destroying. And lo and behold, Russell says, you know, what are you doing tonight? Can you come to my hotel room? And I said, sure. So I go to his room and he, of course, you know, I had, I had apprised him and his whole team of like what was going on with my baby back at home. And so he sits me down and he gives me like simultaneously some of the most heartbreaking, but also uh, heartwarming news of my career. He's like, you know, the heartbreaking part was, Hey man, listen, I'm never going to bring you on tour with me ever, ever again. And the heartwarming part was he said, because you're not an opener, man, you're a headliner. And, um, you know, he said, he told me straight up, he said, I couldn't follow you tonight. And, you know, that's just the truth. Now, in his defense, he had just burned an hour of material. So he was kind of, he had just recorded something. So he was kind of building new material. He didn't really have a strong act at the time. He was kind of building it in front, you know, when you have the luxury of that type of hot hand, he, he could go up in front of 5,000 people with no material and still destroy but here I was, you know, coming in with my polished 20 minutes that I had built over the last eight years. So I was just blowing him out of the water. And so he said to me, yeah, I'm not, you're not an opener. I'm not going to have you open for me anymore. 
um, you know, I'm sorry, but the good news is like, yeah, you're going to be just fine, man. Just keep your head down. I remember you told me, keep your head down, keep working. You know, the way this game works is at some point you get your turn on the ride. You know, it's like you consider yourself in line at, at Six Flags. And one day when your turn comes, you get on the ride and you fly around the world and you collect bags of money. And so just be, be patient. Your time is coming. And that really fueled me for many years. That was a great, great compliment and um, very memorable moment of my career. And then the, the, the good news, the, the happy ending is I did end up flying back shortly thereafter. And thankfully, that son is now 15 years old doing Brilliant. just fine. <laughs> doing just fine. Awesome. Man, that that is way better than my story. Let me let me say, uh, bro, I uh, I feel like when I said my story, I heard, man, what? <laughs> that son is going to grow up to become a valet driver. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> All right, Carl, you want to take us out? Yeah. So, uh, guys, where can people, um, you know, find you online and your socials and uh if you just want to plug like a latest special or anything uh we'd love to hear about it yo paula leah e-l-i-a you can find me on tiktok instagram facebook all the social medias and i have my comedy special coming out called detroit player on mint comedy on christmas eve check it out oh wow perfect very cool um i'm not sure when this podcast is going to drop christmas week Oh, it is okay. Cool. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I'll have my new website launched just yet. I am working on it. Um, next year, twenty twenty four, you could find me on the internet at az.tv. But before then, I do still have my own website. It's azhar.com. A z as in zebra. H a r. Azhar.com. All my social media links are there. I'm very excited about Paul's special coming out, Detroit Player, which I got. I was very lucky to be a producer on. And uh, nice. sometime in 2024, uh, Paul has directed my stand-up film, which we are in post-production on right now. And hopefully that'll be coming soon in uh, 2024. You can be on the lookout for that. Thank oh, you. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Absolutely. Well, hey, well, thanks for uh, taking the time, guys. We really appreciate it. Thanks, oh, fellas. Thank so I'll see y'all. Yeah. All right. Shout All out right. to Take care. After. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> All right. See you later. Thanks. Peace. The final word. Hello, this is Father Brandon Leepak, a priest of the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City, and I have been invited to ponder with you a question raised in the book, Ask the Bible Geek, by Mark Hart. If God doesn't sleep, why does he need a day of rest? Perhaps, like many of you now hearing this Catholic riddle, I was not prepared to rush into a hasty answer and fall off the theological balance beam just yet. By providence, I was staying at a Cistercian monastery in Aptos, California, catching up on some well-needed rest. So I had time to ponder the puzzle of God's rest and what it means for us while joining in the hours of prayer and work at the monastery. Being a guest, the monks, who keep a lot of livestock, wouldn't let me work very much, but I watched two rams, voracious in their pursuit of a low tree branch, scramble over their fence into a duck pen. These two prodigal rams caused a lot of problems for the monk who tried to shoo them back into their pasture without injury to goat, monk, or duck. One ram was stuck and just couldn't understand how to get back home. 
the monk who had to feed the sheep, goats, ducks, pigs, dogs, and guests, finally left the goat there among the geese and walked away, exhausted. Maybe that was it. Maybe God saw Adam and Eve making a mess of things, threw up his hands and said, I quit with you people, you're impossible. And then he went to a nice spa resort and spent the first Sabbath recovering from that stubborn creature, humanity. Hmm, maybe not. God doesn't get tired. So I decided to ask the head monk of the community for help. He closed his eyes and smiled and said, God rested in the thing he loved, his creation. It was the rest of delight. He rested to give us an example that we do need rest to be where he is always. God's rest is the perfection of action, the unity of a simple, loving tranquility. Hey everybody, this is Carl Kozlowski, and I'm just uh, letting you know that if you're looking for a last-minute, clean, and funny stocking stuffer, pick up my book, Dozing Confused, Tales from a Nutty Narcoleptic Life, on Amazon. I won the title of America's Funniest Reporter in a National Laugh Factory contest, and this book is a collection of 30 of my funniest articles and essays from my 25-year career as a reporter at some of America's biggest media outlets. So uh, enjoy Christmas and have some laughs on me, but go find the book at Amazon.com. Thank you. God bless. CatholicLaughter.com brings live stand-up comedy shows to your church, fundraiser, or event. For more information or to inquire, go to CatholicLaughter.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram.